Good morning. Our scripture reading for this morning is 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. In glory. And God, we want to see your name this morning continue to be high and lifted up. And Lord, I pray that, um, that you would help me, uh, Holy Spirit, to guard the good deposit of your word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that, um, that we would hear your word with, um, with ears afresh. And I pray, God, that you would um, just impact our hearts that we would um, be convicted, that we'd be encouraged. We would be spurred on to, um, to uh, live our lives in joyful submission to you, uh, not to gain anything, but because of your sacrifice that we already possess everything in Christ Jesus. So God, I'm, uh, as always, I'm in need of your um, power. I'm in need of your grace. And I pray, God, that you would be... Um, honored and glorified here this morning. We love you, and we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. God's people said, amen. amen. Good morning again. So Windsor Community Church, as you may know, we are, uh, we are part of a greater family of churches called Crossway Chapel. And of course, this church is also part of a, uh, the universal church, all uh, the church that is made up of believers uh, in every corner of the world. But our small family is called Crossway Chapel. And if you look at our little logo on the website, it says Windsor Community Church, and underneath that, a Crossway Chapel. And we're, we're actually proud to associate with Crossway. Um, the pastors of this church and of the other Crossway churches probably um, experience more value in being associated with Crossway than a lot of you do. Although, if you participated in the women's retreat this year, that was really a collaborative effort of Crossway Chapel. So we, we love being a part of this um, small and growing network of churches. We've got five churches in northern Colorado. We've got uh, three in Fort Collins, two in Fort Collins, one Loveland, one Alt, one here in Windsor. And God willing, we're going to be planting a church as the Lord leads us um, in Greeley sometime in the, in the future. We have a sister church in a town in Arizona in the northwest corner of Phoenix called Surprise, Arizona. Anybody familiar with Surprise? It's a, it's a fast-growing area, isn't it? It's got about 130,000 people. I saw 10 years ago it was about 30,000 people. And uh, this church is called Riverview Community Church. It's in the extreme northwest. It's in the desert, of, uh, desert part of Surprise. And um, this church in Surprise pastored by John Williams, is, um, it's a growing church. It's, uh, it was planted about three years ago. Um, John Williams is their only pastor elder. Um, they, they don't have a plurality there. It's not best, but John is doing his best to uh, raise up other, other elders. The church right now meets um, twice a month is all. Uh, they meet every other Sunday. In January, they're going to go to meeting every Sunday. 
In the meantime, they've got three community groups that meet once a week. John and Lori, John Williams and his wife Lori, have sacrificed a ton to plant this church. About two years ago, John was, when this church was, was in its infant stages, he was diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer. And today he's approaching his 24-month mark. He is alive. He's joyful. He has a contagious desire, actually, to live his life with his eyes set on eternity. Last week, this is fresh to me, because last week, last Tuesday, he flew out to Colorado when he joined us on Wednesday morning in our, in our regional Crossway Chapel pastors meeting. And I got to spend a fair amount of time with John. And I was really spurred on. I was really encouraged, convicted in my own life, my own walk. And I asked John after spending time with him, I said, John, I'm preaching 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. And we opened it up. And I said, how would you preach that this Sunday? He says, Dan, I would preach it with intentional urgency. And all that I was preaching it to, I would encourage them to live their lives with an intentional urgency urgency. He said, even though I've been given a death sentence, he says, it's not really any different than you. Than you. And it's really not any different to the people that are in your congregation and the people that you know and love. Because he says, Dan, he says, you know what? He says, the people in northern Colorado are the same as the people in Surprise, Arizona, and it's the same as me. And that is the mortality rate in Colorado is the same as Arizona, and that's 100%. He says, the only difference is, is that I've been diagnosed with a terminal disease. The rest of us don't know that we're dying, or we don't live as if we're dying. The question, he said, is how do we live our lives in reality, in, 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 um, in light of that reality? And he says, we should live our lives with an intentional urgency knowing that time is short for all of us. You know, I've kind of, I've kind of as, you've, as you've heard me talk over the last six months or so, you know, I've, I've kind of been on this journey anyways. You know, having my uh, prayer time and quiet time in the cemetery, I know kind of sick. But it's been really good for my soul just to, just to read the, those epitaphs and to, to do the math on those dates and re, to be reminded that, that my life um, one day, um, hopefully... Um, not anytime soon, will we'll come to an end on this earth. So I've realized in my own life that I'm closer to the finish line than I am to the starting blocks. And it has me constantly aware and desirous of being super intentional in my remaining days, weeks, months, and years. Not in a fatalistic kind of way, but in a, in a realistic kind of way. John Williams can't help but remember death as the doctors have given him a death sentence. He prays, I pray, everybody that knows John is praying that, this, that the cancer would go away. We can pray that way. Our desire actually is that John stays around a little bit longer. But John can't help but remember death. He can't help but think of those Latin words, memento mori, remember death. And this motivates him to reflect on God's kindness to him. And it spurs him on to finish the race well. And even though I haven't been diagnosed with a particular disease, although this torn bicep about killed me, 
I want to remember that life is short. And I'm dying. And all the people of God, all the people that God has placed in my life are dying. My wife is dying. My kids are dying. My grandkids are dying. And I pray that this memento mori would spur me on to live life with intentional urgency. One other thing I asked John, or I didn't ask him, he told me, he says, we don't, we don't do gifts for Christmas anymore. Sounds kind of legalistic. But he says, you know what? He says, since my time is primarily, primarily short, or probably short, we, we build experiences. We build memories. Um, we don't, my kids don't remember what they got for Christmas two years ago, but they remember the time that we spent camping, or they remember the time that we spent going to a, a hotel or a Broncos game or whatever. How about you? Do you think much about death? When you think about death, does it feel like a bummer? Or does it spur you on? If you don't think much about it, I want to I invite you along this journey with me. And I would submit to you that contemplating death, Christ's death first and foremost, and your impending death will greatly improve your life. And it will propel you and motivate you towards a fruitful and joyful life. So my prayer today is that you are spurred on to live a life in joyful submission to the Lord, knowing that there's a finish line out there somewhere. And beyond that finish, life is the most, finish line is the most glorious life that you could ever imagine. I want to just pause for a minute and pray for John Williams and his church, if I might. Father, I, I thank you for John. I thank you that um, for Lori, his wife Lori, they're uh, beautiful children. God, I thank you that uh, for that day, I don't know when that was, but that day when you set them free from the power and the guilt and the penalty of sin. And I thank you for the, the, at that moment, the course or the race that you set them on. And I thank you, God, that they chose to embrace the, the secondary calling on their life to plant this church in Surprise, Arizona. And God, even when you saved them, even when you called them into this ministry, that, that you knew that John would be inflicted with stage four stomach cancer. Didn't surprise you. And God, I thank you for the testimony of your faithfulness in John and Lori's life. I thank you for the uh, testimony of, faithful, of the faithful living of John and Lori. And I pray, God, that they would keep their eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of their faith. I pray, God, that even as they pray that the cancer would be eradicated, I pray that their hope would not be in that, but their hope would be on you, their righteous judge who is awaiting them at some point to crown them with a righteous crown. And so thank you for, John, just the way that you uniquely used him in my life last week. And I pray, God, that a little bit of that would spill over onto these saints here this morning. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to remind you what the, uh, uh, that, that Paul is writing this letter. He is in shackles. He is on death row in a cold, lonely Roman prison. And what we know about Paul's life is that he lived his life with intentional urgency. Paul writes this letter to Timothy as someone who is aware of being in the final days of his life. Therefore, this letter might be loosely called Paul's last will and testament. 
The implied purpose throughout this letter is to inspire Christ followers, you and I, to follow Paul's example by persevering in the midst of suffering and even in the midst of impending death. Paul encourages his young, his young friend to persevere in his gospel ministry regardless of suffering, regardless of circumstances. And I want to I emphasize persevere versus endure. Enduring is good, and Paul talks, tells us to endure, but endure has a, has a sense of, of just taking it, that, that we're to endure what the enemy throws at us, that we're to endure suffering. And Paul says certainly endure, but he says persevere. It's offensive. It's pressing forward. It's, he said, fulfill your ministry. Faithfully finish the course that I've laid out for you, God says. You see, every Christian, as I've already said, faces the same glorious future that Paul's about to face. It's, it's a future where we will know the fullness of Christ's victory when we pass from this life to everlasting life. And as we live out a sincere faith, we will in differing degrees face the same struggle to persevere until death. The Puritan writer Edmund Barker once wrote that every Christian hath two great works to do in this world, to live well and to die well. And today we're going to get a closer view of Paul's attitude and thinking as he approaches the end of his life. So my prayer is that Paul's life, his testimony here would spur you on much like uh, Patrick's testimony spurred us on this morning. Last week, we saw Paul's final encouragement to Timothy in this letter, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, and he said this. He said, as for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, be offensive, do the work of the evangel evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Today, we see Paul preparing himself and Timothy for his approaching death. Reflecting back on his life and looking forward to the life ahead as he prepares to transition from this life to the next. You know, and I got to believe that Timothy's both scared and he's receiving some level of comfort from Paul here. And I, and I picture what, when, when I read this, what I, what I see and hear Paul saying and what Timothy is receiving is, come Timothy, follow my example. I have found, I have tasted and found that the master is kind and his cause is good. He says, Timothy, I can look back upon my warfare with a great deal of pleasure and satisfaction. And therefore, don't be afraid of the difficulties that you must meet with. The crown of life is sure. And it is sure to you as if you're already wearing it on your head. Therefore, endure afflictions. Fulfill your ministry. And we can look not only at Paul's life, but we can look back and be comforted by the lives of saints and ministers and dying martyrs that have gone before us, who, who through their faithful testimony, they confirmed the truth of the Christian faith. Let's look at verse 6. Paul says to Timothy, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul's comparing his life to a drink offering. And what we know about a drink offering in the Old Testament, in the sacrificial system, this was the final offering that followed the burnt and grain offerings. And, and these, this, this, this drink offering followed the offering of atonement. This was a response to the forgiveness of their sins. 
This refers to the topping off of the ancient atoning animal sacrifice. The offerer poured wine either in front of or on top of the burning animal and the wine would vaporize and the steam symbolized the rising of the offering to the Lord as a pleasing aroma. And this is a vivid illustration of a life poured out in God's service. This is very similar to what we see in Romans 12.1 where Paul encourages Christians to, to live, what's he say, to present our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. Let that be our spiritual worship. That, that our sacrifice of pouring our lives out is not salvific. We're not saved by good works, but it's in response to what Christ has already done. You see, from the time of Paul's conversion or Saul's conversion on the Damascus Road, everything Paul had, he gave to God. His wealth, his body, his brilliant mind, his passions, his position, his pursuits, his reputation, his relationships, his dreams that he all poured out in response to what God had already done for him. Paul viewed his entire life as a drink offering. It's the image of red wine splashing down upon the altar. It became an operative metaphor for how Paul regarded his life. And then he says, and the time for my departure has come. He didn't say the time for my death has come. He's not, he's not a, uh, 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 he, died, he believes that there's an afterlife, actually. Or, or better said, that there's a continuation of the life that he is already living in Christ. It's time for his departure. Departure means that he's going somewhere. He's not just dying and staying in the ground. He's departing. The Greek word essentially refers to the loosening of something, such as the mooring ropes of a ship or loosing of an anchor. That the anchor that held him firm throughout this entire life is now being released so that he can transition or depart to be with Christ. To depart from this fallen world and head towards the new heavens and the new earth. You know, Paul talked about this six or seven years earlier when he was, when he was writing to the Philippians in chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. And he was debating, he was debating what, you know, he knew what glories laid ahead to him on the other side of the finish line. Yet he knew that there was work for him to do. And he didn't know what was better. That we would live our lives that way. That we would know that, that eternity, the other side of the finish line, is not just some um, um, morbid joke, but it's actually a better life. Our best life is not now, actually. It's in the future. But we have been given life, and life abundantly, and so many blessings to enjoy. Amen? Let me read to you what he wrote the Philippians. He says, for to, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh on this earth before he dies, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for the progress and joy of your faith. And that's why God's left us here, actually. For His glory and for the sake of the elect. He's given every one of us a ministry 
so that we can help one another progress in their, in, and, and joy in their faith. So they can have progress and have joy in their faith. You see, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy with this reality in mind. He, he will shortly be loosed from this temporal world and will, and will set sail in the new world. And what he's doing here, he's making his final plea to Timothy. He's making a final plea to us through all generations to fight the good fight, to finish the race, and to keep the faith. And now Paul looks backwards with great pleasure upon the life that he lived. And Paul didn't live a perfect life. Paul's like you and I. He was very imperfect. But he lived a life with a trajectory towards Christ. He says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Paul likened life like a war. And he, like, like he, he knew that he was on a warship, not a cruise ship. And his war were for the, his, he warred for the souls of mankind. And he not only contended with false teachers and false brethren, but more importantly, he contended against the enemy. As it says in Ephesians 6.12, that he contended against the rulers, against the authorities. This is not human authorities. This is the spiritual authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Paul knew that he was living amidst a battle. And he knew that his ultimate offensive weapon was the word of God. The sword of the spirit, Ephesians 6.17. And Paul, all throughout his life, he suffered a litany of dangers. But he was able to shout in the midst of those dangers, in the, sh- in the midst of war, he was able to shout, Romans 8, 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Back in Acts 20, 24, Paul had just spent three years with the church in Ephesus, which is where Timothy is now. And he gave a a passionate, tearful farewell speech. And he said this to the elders that he left behind in Ephesus. He says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Notice Paul's emphasis on finishing the race that the Lord gave him. His emphasis is not on winning a race. That's not the goal. It's already been won. Years ago, I was invited to run run alongside a man in the last 50 miles of the Leadville 100. It's a race that's all above 9,000 feet. It's a race that has to be done in 24 hours. And they have to run the first 50 miles by themselves, but they can can find some unsuspecting uh, moron to run the last 50 miles with them. And I said yes to that, and so I joined them. I joined him at, at, at mile 50, and um, and I ran with him for for 29 miles to mile 79, and where he bonked out, his his hands were the size of meat cleavers because he was not sweating at all. His feet were bleeding, and he tapped out. But what's what's significant about the Leadville 100 is that even though there is somebody that comes in first, there's no there's no blue ribbon. There's no red ribbon. There's no uh, white ribbon. That, that um, what we hate about kids' sports today is that everybody gets a ribbon. It's true with Christianity, though. And it is so freeing that, that, that Christ has won the victory for us. 
And that because of that, because of that reality, that all we need to do is by faith in his finished work on the cross, in his resurrection, from the, his, his victorious resurrection, in his ascension to the right hand of the Father, is believe that and be empowered by that and finish the race. Some of you have ran a Spartan race. And again, the goal is not to win it. It's to finish it. Awards are given to finishers, not winners. This is true for our life in Christ. The writer of Hebrews noted that each believer has a course marked out for him or her, that there is a course for us as Christians, but there is individual courses for you as a Christian. In the Hebrews 12, one says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The course for you and I is unique to you and I. You don't have to run my course. I don't have to run your course. Some of our courses are relatively straight. Some of them have um, hills and mountains. Some are more windy than others. Some of you have been given tougher courses than others. Some of us have been given easier courses. But God is faithful. No matter what course he gave you to run, that he will hold you fast that he will see you to the end. Paul tells Timothy, I've finished the race. There's nothing more for me to do but die well. But you, Timothy, you're still in the race. Life in Christ is metaphorically called a race, not because any particular Christian will win or lose, but like a race, the life is short. If you hold, if you hold, if you by faith hold promise of life that is in Christ Jesus alone, you like me are already victorious. The dread of death surrounds us. We've got some of that in our family. The dread of death surrounds us. It's not fun. But for the Christian, there's a better life on the other side. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. The race, the course, starts at the moment of salvation. That what Patrick gave testimony to this morning, that when he put his faith and trust, when God delivered him from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, his course started then. And our job as a body is to cheer him on so that he finishes the race well. And our job as a church is to, is to spur one another on to love and good deeds so we run the race well and finish the race well. You see, Paul had a balanced awareness of the intentional urgency to live for Christ, but also a desire to be with Christ. He says, I kept the faith. And the best that I can understand this is that keeping the faith seems to be more of a faithfulness to running the course, a faithfulness to fulfilling his ministry. And his ministry was to guard the deposit, to invest in faithful men, to preach the word, faithful to believe the gospel and finish the course given to him by the Lord. You see, keeping the faith isn't necessarily perfection. In fact, let me emphatically say it's not perfection. It's keeping our eyes on perfection. But, it's, but it is direction. And in this direction, it, it's stumbling. It's not sprinting necessarily. It's stumbling. It's falling. It's, it's getting up, lifting our head all dirty and bloody and looking past the finish line. 
and seeing the righteous judge with his arms open saying, you can finish this. I have already won the race for you. Get up. Get up. Keep your eyes fixed on me. Verse 8. Paul says, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. And these are, this is true for every one of you who put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And I love this, and this just struck me like probably nothing else in this passage, that Paul uses the word therefore a lot. But he didn't use it here. Because if he would have said um, uh, that I have, um, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, therefore, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. That's work salvation. You see, us fighting the good fight, running the race, and keeping the faith has nothing to do with being saved. I read somewhere, there was, a, there was a quote, I don't even know who it was. In fact, I'm just going to claim it as my own right now because it's really good. Um, we are no more saved by good works than a spider web can save a falling boulder. We, good works do nothing but give us assurance of our salvation. That responding to the gospel with good works, responding to the gospel by, by um, fighting the good fight, finishing the race, and keeping the faith is really assurance of salvation. This was Paul's hope. This was Paul's hope. His hope was that there was laid up for him the crown of righteousness with the right, which, which the righteous judge will award him on that last day. This, that truth was his hope and his motivation for fighting, running, and living a faithful life. About two months ago, my son Mitch and I were in a partner wad. We were in a partner wad, and it was a long one. I think it was going to be like a 30-minute wad. And if I'm exaggerating, just correct me later. Don't stand up and say anything. Um, but it was a long wad. And we were, we, were, we, were, we were just, he had more weight than me. He was probably doing more reps than me. Um, in fact, I didn't do anything. Now, we were, we were doing this thing together. And there were 30 minutes um, in this wad. And I was kind of cruising, actually, because I was at about minute 14. And I knew that there was a good 16 minutes left. So I was like saving some of my energy. Then all of a sudden, you remember this? All of a sudden, in the middle of the workout, the coach goes, time! What? I still got 16 minutes left, and I still had my best yet to come. I thought, what happened? And he explained to us that he cut it short in order to help us better understand how much we really had left in us. True story? I still haven't forgiven him. If I had known that the workout was going to be cut short, I would have worked harder. I would have spent more energy. It's the same with life. We tend to cruise. We think we have tomorrow. We think we have next week. We think we have next month and next year. We think the finish line is a long ways out, that we have time. Yes, the crown has been secured by Jesus. 
Paul lived his sacrificial life in light of that gospel. He lived with an intentional urgency in light of that gospel truth. Even though Nero had judged Paul guilty and gave Paul a death sentence, the judge of righteousness had already declared Paul innocent. That he was justified and he was promised eternal life. You see, Paul could finish his course because he knows, or he, he knows what, or better said, who is on the other side of that finish line waiting for him. So through good and bad, thick and thin, he set his eyes on the author and perfecter of his faith. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. He says this, or the author says this of Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Looking towards Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Paul lived his life right up to these very last days, running the course set for him with his eyes fixed on the finish line or actually beyond the finish line. He knows at the moment he hits the tape and stumbles past the finish line that he'll be crowned with a winner's crown by the righteous judge. Gordon Fee said this, one receives the final crown of righteousness precisely because one has already received the righteousness of Christ. That if you are in Christ, you are united with Christ, and God the Father sees you as completely holy, completely righteous. That Jesus took all of your sin on the cross, and you took all of his righteousness upon you. And you'll receive that crown, not because of good deeds, but because uh, you are clothed in righteous robes already. And I know some Christians that spend way too much time wondering about rewards in heaven, wondering about crowns. Forget it. Forget that. Whatever crown you receive, whatever reward you get, you get Live a life in joyful submission to the Lord. Some Christians are going, you know, what if my crown's too small? What if I, what, how do I earn a bigger crown? Ignore these speculations and simply be busy serving and glorifying God and the crown will just take care of itself. And all who receive this crown of righteousness have one thing in common. They loved, they loved his appearing. They loved his first appearing in his last act. They loved that Jesus would send his only son to live the perfect life, to die the sacrificial death, to victoriously raise again from the dead. They love and know, as I think Pat said earlier, about that you've got to know you're a sinner. And when we know we're a sinner, we love and we're in awe that Jesus would come and empty himself. And here... um, This side of the cross that we are living in Christ, um, in Christ's imputed righteousness, we've been justified, that our hope is set on his final appearing, that we love his final appearing, that we know that he's going to come to judge the living and the dead. And that is the believer's hope, that we are born again to a living hope. So brothers and sisters, just in closing... Don't be afraid to stare death in the face. 
join me some Tuesday morning at the cemetery. Grab a latte, a scone. And memento mori, remember death. Look back to the cross first and foremost. Look forward to your impending death and, and what, or more importantly, who awaits you with open arms. And when you break that finish line, there's going to be a loud gavel sound as a reminder that you are judged and declared innocent. And because of Christ's righteousness, you will receive the crown of righteousness. And you will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to follow Paul's life. Let John Williams be an example. To live your lives with intentional urgency. Reflect upon your life and remember how God has carried you along. Continue to fight the good fight. Finish the race and remain faithful. At the same time, keep your eyes beyond that finish line on the author and perfecter of your faith. Live a life of sacrifice. Fight the good fight. This, this is a race not to win, but to run with our eyes fixed on him. And I want to encourage you. Remember the old WWJD bracelets? Does anybody wear those anymore? No. I think it's probably a good thing. Because at the end of the day, the, the, the motivation for our life and the questions that we should be asking is not what, would, not what would Jesus do, not what would Paul do, not what would John do, but the motivation to live an intentionally urgent life is remembering what Christ has done and remembering the hope that we have in a future salvation. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you that um, for our great salvation. And Lord, for the crazy truth that, um, that when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, when we were uh, headed away from you, uh, running in the opposite direction, um, no, uh, uh, no uh, capability actually to respond, that you um, arrested us, that you grabbed a hold of us, and you turned our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And I thank you that because of, of faith alone and Christ alone, through grace alone, that we are forever yours. That you will hold us fast. That, our, that the anchor behind the veil will never be untethered until it is our time to be face to face with Jesus. And God, I thank you for that hope that we have. That sure hope that we will, in fact, finish the race. That we are secure in Christ. That there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And God, I pray that the truth, that we remember your sacrifice. And then when we look out and we remember that we are mere mortals on this earth. God, I pray that it would motivate us, that it would compel us to live lives with intentional urgency, not to gain anything, but because we possess everything in Christ Jesus. And we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.